This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, the show that talks all things outdoors in Paul Bunyan Country, or as we like to call it, paradise. Well, we spend a lot of time on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors talking about fishing and hunting and the fish and the animals we hunt, but today we're checking in with Lori Nauman. She's the information officer for the Non-Game Wildlife Program. And that kind of, I guess, Lori, encompasses everything that we don't hunt and fish for. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly what non-game means. Uh, Lori, first of all, thanks for joining the show. We appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. So give us kind of a general idea of what we mean by non-game. Well, non-game is, as you said, everything that is not hunted or fished. And that includes over 800 species of birds. Um, snakes, amphibians, pollinators, all kinds of different, um, all kinds of different things that you see every day when you're outside. So uh, when we go outside to go fishing in the summer or to go hunting in the fall, and we enjoy those lovely birds singing and seeing them dart about, and you know, you know, we see the the bees pollinating, all that stuff. That falls into the realm of the non-game wildlife. It does, and we focus a lot of our energy on all of those species that are in greatest conservation need. So all of the things that are not necessarily um, showy species or species that you're necessarily familiar with, but a lot of the species that are somehow in decline or somehow in trouble. And so we focus on those species because the species that have recovered or are doing well, such as the bald eagle or the trumpeter swan, for instance, those species have recovered. So we focus on those species that are that are in decline or, or in trouble. And so we do research on them and we conduct surveys and focus focus our monetary attention on those species. So the trumpeter swan and the eagle, that was all under under the realm of non-game wildlife. Yes, it was. And our program was very instrumental in recovering the species of bald eagles, peregrine falcons, um, and especially trumpeter swans. Without our program, you would not be seeing trumpeter swans on the landscape in, in Minnesota. So it, it really does involve a lot of things that we consider part of what's great about Minnesota, even though we maybe don't go hunting and we don't see that you know, on our table for dinner one night, um, seeing those swans, seeing those eagles, that's that's really one of the couple of the amazing things about being in Minnesota. Absolutely. And the iconic common loon that yes. everyone associates with Minnesota. Those are that's a species too that would not be on the landscape um, without the help of our program and a lot of other other programs. But certainly, the loon is another species that we do monitor and do surveys on and keep a, a standing count on what their population is doing and how they're doing. Um, we've done a lot of research since the Gulf oil spill back in 2011, and those species we have a very good handle on you know how they're affected by all of those environmental concerns and we helped bring back the peregrine falcon and the bald eagle when ddt had brought down their populations and you know those species recover so we shift our focus then to those species that have not recovered and do need our help 
really good point. Um, tell me a little bit about some of those species we're talking about right now. So some of those species would be the wood turtle or um, another species that is up in your area is the common tern. Common tern used to be very common in, in Minnesota, and now there are only two nesting areas that we have focused on in trying to protect those areas so that they are not predated on or they are not um, flooded out so that hopefully we can reestablish those populations in Minnesota. Um, there's also a number of pollinators, um, the regal fritillary, which is a little butterfly, and um, we do research on them as well as um, the Blanding's turtle and um, you can find a lot of those species and a lot of the projects that we're doing on our non-game wildlife um, page on our web page which is mndnr.gov forward slash non-game and you can find you know all of those different all of the different things that that we are currently working on and and do our work with. You mentioned the loon, and uh, there's a number of other birds that, that have been mentioned. Uh, I talk to people with Ducks Unlimited a lot, and of course, they have to coordinate across the nation and really across the continent because ducks travel. And I'm assuming a number of these birds travel too. Do you have to work with other agencies when you're doing some of these projects? Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill that happened, um, we work with a number of different agencies, um, because of their migratory patterns and their migratory habits, they spent their time and they spend their time in the Gulf. And when that oil spill happened, it was precisely where our loons spend their summers. And so they were there at the time and they happened to feed all the way to the bottom of the ocean. And we know that because we put transmitters and locators on our, on our loons, um, from Minnesota and, learned that when that oil was, when they um, put out dispersants to disperse that oil, it didn't just disappear. That oil actually dropped all the way to the bottom of the ocean, and we found that loons are actually feeding right off of the bottom of the ocean. And so we knew that because they because of the depth that they were diving to. And as research continued, we learned that that oil and those dispersants, the thumbprint from those was showing up in our loons, in their feathers, in their eggs, and in their blood samples. And so we do work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and um, depending on the species and where they migrate to um, would depend on which, you know, we we would work with those agencies where our animals and birds mm-hmm. migrate to, such as the trumpeter swan, for instance. When that population started to increase, the birds are starting to migrate to other states and they might be states that are not familiar with the swan and they were in danger of being shot by hunters because hunters were not familiar with what these swans were, that they were um, a threatened or endangered species at the time. And um, so we help educate those other states to to identify those birds and, and to make sure that they know that they're not a huntable species. Going back to the loons for a bit, um Obviously, you know, common sense tells us petroleum is not good for loons, but have we seen any specific uh, things happen due to that oil spill to the loon? Well, because the research is still ongoing and because it's been, oh, 10 years or so, 
we're not entirely sure that it's affecting moons at the population level, but there certainly have been some sort of abnormalities in some loons with that have been born with birth defects, you know, such as curved bills or um, some other things and, and death, of, of course. We haven't completely traced it back to that oil yet, um, and thankfully our population has been maintaining at a, a level of about 12,000 birds, so that's about how many loons we have in this state and that population has remained stable at about that level. So it hasn't increased, but because that population is at a stable level, we can see where something like an oil spill or some other natural disaster could wipe out an, our entire population at one time. So that's why we're so concerned about each of these species and making sure that the habitats and their um, wherever it is that they they are spending their time in Minnesota or in other in their migration areas that those areas are protected as well because anything anything you know even an oil spill here in Minnesota might affect things such as the amphibians that are spending their time on the ground and get affected by um, an oil spill as well as anything that might happen in the water where where they're spending their time so it's just very important to make sure that not only are we protecting the species itself, but we're protecting its habitat as well. Lori, um, talking about the pollinators, certainly that is something I have read about a lot over the you know nationally and uh, and even internationally that there's been a, a real reduction in the number of pollinators out there, and that's been a concern. How about Minnesota? Where are we at in that situation? Well, you know that's uh, that's something that is you know, relatively new, but we are restoring and diversifying native prairies. Um, and we, as part of the Wildlife Action Plan, and our, our focus is providing that high diversity native wildlife um, habitat for prairie pollinators. And we can in, increase the distribution and abundance of, of prairie wildflowers. And, you know, there, and we've, we're seeing um, an increase in those prairie po- populations, those pollinators such as the regal fritillary and, and, you know, even monarchs and things like that. So the more that we can restore those sites for butterflies and bumblebees, the more we can help protect those pollinators. Um, tall grass prairies are also very important, and so there are a number of species in greatest conservation need that rely on tall grass prairies as well. So, again, it's that, it's that habitat, um, providing that habitat as well as protecting it. Um, is so important and we do go out and do counts in the spring and you know that those efforts are really giving us that crucial data to to you know try to figure out the decline of those grassland birds and pollinators um, in in when it when it comes to changes in those prairie plants I am as layman as a layman can be when it comes to knowledge of science. I took exactly one course in my college career in science, (laughs) but yet I find it really, really fascinating. And I've talked to so many people in the DNR over the years and and Ducks Unlimited and other organizations. And what, what I find the most fascinating is just how intertwined the natural world is that when some of these non game species, um, aren't around anymore or are in dangerous numbers, the daisy chain of reaction it causes through the rest of the natural world. 
Absolutely. And, you know, the misconception that hunters only care about hunted species is false. You know, there are um, hunters and and people who fish are, are very concerned about the natural world, and they enjoy non-game species just as much as the game species. And without their purchase of the hunting licenses and fishing licenses, it would be, um, you know, it would be detrimental because those organizations such as Ducks Unlimited and Pheasants Forever do protect that habitat as well. And in habitat, you know, species don't care about who's paying for the habitat. They just use that habitat, and and it's used by a number of different species. And so where, where one species, such as a pollinator or something like that, is affected, it could affect the whole food chain. So it is very important, um, you know, that we that we pay attention to that habitat. And the more that we do surveys and research and things like that, the more we find those species that might not have been um, prevalent before or that may not have been recognized before, you know, once we're really digging down into the into the deep habitats and things like that, we can we find, you know, even beetles and and other bugs and things that are also very necessary for that entire food chain. So it's, it is it is very much a collaborative effort between all of these different organizations. And one of the things um, with non-game wildlife and um, some of the other birding organizations is that there's not a steady stream of income um, that comes in, such as a hunting or fishing license. So we rely completely on donations um, to fund our research and projects, um, and and that those donations on on the tax checkoff on your on your tax forms is um, the majority of our project money. That's where we that's where our funding comes from. Later in the show, much more to come with Lori Nauman of the Minnesota DNR's Non-Game Wildlife Program. But up next, we're going to talk fishing with Dick Beardsley, who's already been out in a boat. And he didn't have to go to Florida to do it. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Welcome back to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Well, it's always a great day when we get to check in with Dick Beardsley of Dick Beardsley Guide Service. Dick, welcome back to Paul Bunyan Country. Hey, Kev. Great to be on with you as as always. And, Kev, I think, I, I don't want to jinx us, but I, <laughs> I, I think spring has sprung a little early this year. It appears that way. I'm almost ready to bring my bike down from the rafters, but uh, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid of jinxing it, like you said. <laughs> I know, I know. It's... Uh, you know, this time of the year, we're in that transition period, and um, boy, don't count out a big snow yet. And and you know, I've seen in the middle of May on the fishing opener it out snowing and sleeting. So uh, I'm sure we'll have a little more cold, snowy weather yet. But boy, it uh, it sure is nice getting some of these nice days now. Based on what you're seeing temp wise, anticipating that it may stay the same, about how many more days of ice fishing do we have left, really? Well, I tell you what, Kev, um, that's a great question. I was out on a area lake earlier in the week and doing some, uh, some bluegill and crappie fishing. And I, you know, I, I parked my truck right on the, just off the access. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to walk out. You know, it's easy pulling. It was only about a quarter mile out from the access. It's easy pulling now with no snow, you know, pulling your portable out and, 
I tell you, I got out there, and I'm I'm glad I didn't drive my truck out. You know, I've got a three-quarter ton pickup, so it, it weighs quite a bit more than a half ton. And there was, on the lake I was on, there was just, there was a little less than 15 inches. Okay. And, um, which, you know, it was probably fine. But saying that, I drilled uh, some holes, and I get in my portable, and, of course, you can see so well when you, you don't have that light shining down there. And you can really see that that ice now, you know, it melts from the bottom up. And um, and you can really see that bottom edge really starting to erode. So, uh, yeah, it's um, it's going to be something. Now, saying that, um, last weekend I was out on Lake Bemidji doing some perch fishing, and I was still driving my truck out there, and there was 22 inches of uh, good solid ice yet, but... Those accesses are are starting to get uh, chewed up quite a bit, and and you know the lakes they start pulling away from shore, and that's the biggest thing is that there's a lot of times usually good ice as you get out away from shore, but the problem is getting out there, and uh, there's really I tell you, Kev, it, it's things have really um, shut down as far as fishing wise. There's just not people out fishing. I mean, even last weekend it was nice. There was virtually nobody out on Lake Bemidji and some of the other area lakes that I was kind of checking on. So I think a lot of folks have got to the point now where, you know, we've got this nice weather. A lot of people did uh, quite a bit of ice fishing this winter, and it's like, okay, let's get things ready for the open water season that uh, will be coming up before we know it. Yeah, it will be coming up before we know it. It's unbelievable. In fact, you actually got to do a little fishing in a boat, and you didn't even have to go down to Florida. <laughs> no, I did, Kev. You know, every year I uh, I get out to the central part of South Dakota, out between uh, Chamberlain, South Dakota, and a, a town called Bone Steel, South Dakota, which is south of there, on the Missouri River on Lake Francis Case. Of course, the South Dakota has no closed season on walleyes, and we got out there. I was out there two weeks ago with a guide client from uh, the Twin Cities, and uh, we were... I have to admit, that was as early as I'd been out there in a long, long time. And, you know, we were kind of dodging a little bit of uh, ice and everything once in a while. But the, the the walleye bite was really, really good. And, oh, my gosh, it was it was so much fun, Kip, being back out in the boat and, and having a 7-foot rod in my hand instead of a 27-inch rod in my hand. <laughs> and, um, it really was. And the weather was, was really nice. It was in the 60s. For the couple of days that I was out there, now saying that, though, the water temperature was only 34, 35 degrees. So, boy, when you were, when you were, you know, motoring down the river and across the, the open areas, it was, it was chilly. So you, you had to be dressed really warm because, like I said, that water temperature was, was really chilly. And it doesn't take much of a breeze to get pretty cold out there. But, no, it was a lot of fun. And. I'm hoping to be going out there in another week or so. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the, what's the biggest difference in, in the in the style of fishing for South Dakota wallies than here? I mean, the lakes are a little bit different, so I anticipate that you have to behave a little differently on there. Yeah, you know, out there, Kev, there is there is a bit of a current, and we were fishing up real close to where the dam is on the very north end of Lake Francis Case, which is about probably twelve miles north of Chamberlain, and so you've got a little bit of a current up there. Not a lot, but the locals out there really, really, they they never fish into the current. They always kind of either float down or use their motor and go with the current. And when I'm out there, 
I kind of go against that rule, I guess, just because probably I don't know any better. <laughs> and um, I, I've caught fish, Kev, going into the current and, and with the current. Now, this time of the year, like it is here early in the season, you know, everybody's, you know, using jigs and minnows, basically, things like that. But then as they get into May out there, even late April, people, they forget they've ever had a jig in their tackle box. And they, <laughs> I would say 95% of them, Kev, pull bottom bouncers with spinners and night crawlers. And they'll do that until late next fall. I mean, they just, uh, they just go crazy out there with spinners and, and night crawlers. But saying that, I tell you, they catch a lot of fish, and that that fishery out there, it, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I've got a couple of friends that that uh, live in Chamberlain that guide out there, and um, the success they have out there on walleyes and sauger and smallmouth bass is it's it's an incredible fishery, and it's so much different out there than here. You know, here we got the beauty of the forest and. All the lakes, well, out there they've got one big body of water, and it's wide open countryside, but it's it's got its own beauty to it also. And the key out there is is trying to be out there when the wind's not blowing 30 miles an hour. If you can do that, uh, you're going to have some success out there pretty much. Okay. Well, um, if we want to get out and do one bit more bit of ice fishing, uh, again, be safe. Make sure you're where there's some solid ice. Um, it's again getting onto the onto the solid ice might be the hardest part of all. But what should we be doing right now if we want to get one more good weekend in? Yeah, you bet, Kev. Well, first off, safety wise, yes, make sure the ice is safe. Obviously, you know I wear my ice picks around my neck. I mean, I wear them all year long. When I start putting them on in late October, early November on that early ice, they they're with me all the time. I don't know if it's my little good luck charm or what, but. You know, have the ice picks with you just in case, you know, just in case you would happen to hit a soft area and, and plunge into that cold water. Those ice picks you can use to pull yourself out. And then another safety uh, item that you definitely need this time of the year is make sure you have some kind of a of cleats on the bottom of your boots because that ice is really, really slick. And, uh, and then, you know, those fish now... Some of those fish, like the perch here on, like, say, Lake Bemidji, we were catching most of our fish out in real deep water this winter. But now they're starting to, you know, they start moving towards that shallow areas, getting ready for that that uh, that spawn that happens once the ice goes out. And it's the same way with area panfish lakes. You know, a lot of those crappies that we were catching this winter are out in those deep water basins. But now they're, they're starting to kind of move a little shallower. They're starting to... To kind of transition towards those areas where in the spring they move into those small, shallow, muddy bottom areas, and they're slowly starting to transition into those areas. So those are great areas to check. And if you can still find some green cabbage out there that didn't die off during the winter, boy, those are like a fish magnet, Kev. And uh, you'll you know you'll catch fish in those areas. So right now we've been getting some bluegills and crappies on area lakes, and you know anywhere from about 10 to 14 foot of water. The water is really clear on most of the lakes. In fact, the little lake I was on the other day, I was in about 14 foot of water, and I could have sight fished for the bluegills. I mean, the water was that clear. And uh, so be aware of that. You know, the water's 
real clear with no snow cover on there. The fish can be a little bit spooky. So, you know, if you're out there with a bunch of folks, you might want to spread yourself out a little bit and try to be as quiet on the ice as you can possibly be. And, and uh, yeah, you'll, uh, y- you know, you'll, uh, you'll have some good action, I think. So I'm taking a look at the uh, long-range forecast for what it's worth, and my life in northern Minnesota tells me it's not worth a whole lot. But <laughs> uh, it doesn't appear we've got any big, huge cold fronts coming in, uh, in, in, in any, any, any time in the near future. So let's just presume we're kind of going to stay on this path, maybe cool down into the 40 to, you know, 38 to 43 range. Um, how long before we see open water here in the North Country? Yeah, Kev. You know, that's always a great question. But I, I took, you know, the average ice out date on, like, say, Lake Bemidji, which, of course, is a big, big lake, is, I think it's around April 29th, April 30th. You know, obviously, the smaller lakes, and shallower lakes are going to go out a lot quicker. But I'll tell you, if this weather keeps up, Kev, I'm I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking by the middle of April we could possibly have ice out on Lake Bemidji. There, you know, because we didn't get all that much ice this year, really considering, you know, many times we get 30-plus inches of ice, and about the thickest I saw all winter on Lake Bemidji was about 25 inches. So now with no snow out there, that's all melted off. We've got this warm sun, and even if it doesn't get, you know, up into the 50s, still, if it's above freezing, that ice is slowly starting to erode away a little bit. And uh, let's say we get ice out, let's say mid, mid-April, boy, I tell you, it, it, it could really shine for a really bright opener on May 15th because that would give those fish a month before the opener. They'll have moved in, they'll have spawned, they'll have recovered, and by that point on the opener, if the ice does go out in the middle of April, I mean it could they're gonna be hungry and it could be it could set up for a really good good opener this year. So uh yeah, I'm excited. But I get excited either way, you know, <laughs> so it's uh I'm just I'm getting real itchy as a lot of people are to get back out there on the on the open water and of course we'll pursue some, you know, bluegills and crappies early in the season and then uh once that the walleye opener comes, uh, obviously a lot of folks are out there out there chasing them. So yeah, it's a it's an exciting time of the year. This time of the year, though, Kev, for me is it's always hard that transition period. But you know, for folks that are in the same boat as I am, as far as dealing with this transition time, this is a great time to you know get your boat all ready, check your trailer, the lights, make sure you've got your tackle in order, order some more things or if you need to, and, uh, you know, get everything all ready to go so you're not scrambling, you know, that last uh, few days before the fishing opener in the middle of May, you know, wondering where this is or that is. It's, uh, it's a good time to do that, and it, uh, it, it helps the time go by a lot quicker, too. It, it absolutely does. I was just going to uh, ask you about that. Uh, between the time we can't ice fish anymore because it's too, uh, too not enough ice and, and we can actually get the boats out there, what do you do? Yeah, get those boats' motors ready. Um, maybe take a look through your ta- tackle box. Make sure you're all well stocked up there too. Absolutely, Kev. And you know, I don't know how it's going to be this year. You know, we still got this pandemic going on, and you know, we're getting it a little under control, but uh, still not like we it, w- it would normally be. You know, last year, I'll tell you what, a lot of the the uh, sporting goods stores anywhere in the whole country when they ran out of that first you know that first uh supply of 
jigs and hard baits and rods, reels, all those kind of things like that, it, you know, they didn't get restocked because they just couldn't get them. So I don't know if we're going to um, face that now, but, you know, you go to the local, you know, tackle uh, bait shops and the local sporting goods stores now because most of the places have their rods, reels, all the summer tackle on the shelves now. And before it gets picked over and they might not be able to restock again, now's a great time to go and, and get that done. Um, what's your opinion about uh, uh, about line? Do you replace your line in your uh, reels every year? You know, Kev, I used to when I ran all monofilament. And now, I'll be honest with you, I know this is probably a little bit different than a lot of folks, but I don't, I don't have any rods spooled with monofilament now. I, I go all braid, and the braid you can keep on, you know, I, I can get two, three years out of braid. It doesn't get all coiled up like monofilament does. And a lot of people don't like braid. I love it. The sensitivity is second to none. I mean, there's no stretch in it, so you can feel every kick. But then what I like to do, and I do on all my rods, is I, I put on about a six or yeah, about a six foot piece of fluorocarbon, usually six pound test, and that fluorocarbon is invisible. And you get just a little bit of stretch off of that to, so that when you do set that hook, you're not just ripping it right out of their mouth. And the key to, to running braid that I found is you've got to loosen up your drag just a little bit. Otherwise, you will. You can, you know, you can rip a, a jig or a hard bait right out of their mouth because there's just no stretch to it. But that's, what, that's where you get that little bit of a of a cushion there when you have that fluorocarbon on there. And plus, like I said, the fluorocarbon is invisible, and uh, it, it really works well. So, yeah, Kev, I, um, I've got all braid on my on my rods, and or my reels, I should say, and uh, maybe every two to three years I, uh, I'll change it out. But otherwise, it, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it lasts a long time, and if you take care of it, and, and I, I use this real magic on it, a few times during the or, uh, line magic, I think it's called, not real magic. I spray that on there a few times during the summertime, and that seems to really keep the line conditioned well, and it lasts even longer. One thing to be aware of, uh, Dick, a lot of people, you know, like you said, haven't been ice fishing much this month, and they're probably uh, not going to go until the, the water's clear and maybe do some of that early season pan fishing. If you haven't been fishing since March 1st, you got to be aware, there's been a lot of changes on a lot of lakes as far as panfish uh, regs go because those new panfish regs uh, went into effect uh, statewide on any number of lakes. So you better be well prepared for what lake you're on. Absolutely, Kevin. Basically what we're talking are bluegill, sunfish, any of that bluegill sunfish family. And in our area here, there's quite a few lakes. In fact, the entire Cass Lake chain, the entire Truda River Lake chain, which is, what, 10, 11 lakes, something like that. Uh, Big Bass Lake, Lake Beltr- well, Lake Beltrami is part of the Turtle River chain. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, Medicine, Big Lake, those all have a five-limit sunfish bluegill, uh, five, you can keep five fish. That's your limit, and I love it. I, I, I really do, because we've got some wonderful lakes around here with... Uh, you know, the potential for some growing some big, big bluegills and the fact that we're dropping that limit down to five. And I know I've heard some complaints from people that, 
well, I can't get enough for a, a fish fry, or I want to take my kids or grandkids out, and if we can only each catch five, then we got to quit. Well, no, you don't have to quit. You can, you know, keep your five fish, and then you can still keep on fishing and just, you know, you catch them, put them back in the water. You can still have a lot of fun. But I tell you what it's going to do, Kev, it's going to really, I think, increase the likelihood of getting those big bluegills. You know, I'm talking those, you know, nine and a half, ten, even 11-inch bluegills, which I, I hope nobody keeps those big bluegills like that. We need the genetics, you know, in the lake. So, you know, you get those big 10-inch bluegills, boy, take a picture, put them back, and, um, you know, let them, let's keep that gene pool in our, our local lakes. And those smaller 7, 8, 8.5-inch bluegills, they're the best eaten anyhow. So, uh, yeah. So, and let me tell you, folks, most of the lakes in our area, I've checked, they have a little, there's a little uh, a sign up that says, Five, uh, five, uh, you know, five feet or five fish limit. Five, thank you, Kel. (laughs) Five fish limit. But not all of the lakes have that, and it's up to you as an angler to know what those rules are on each lake in the new 2021 fishing regulation book that you can get at any of the gas stations, bait shops around the area. It lists all the lakes in there, but it's up to you to know that lake and. And, you know, I'm sure the game wardens are, are not going to, um, you know, have any sympathy for you if you come in with a, you know, over your five fish limit on those lakes that it is just a five fish limit. So know the lakes you're on, but it, I think it's a great thing and, uh, it's going to produce some, you know, as we get down a few years from now, we're going to have some lakes that are kicking out some big, big bluegills, which is lots of fun. One of the things I've been really impressed with in the last decade or so, um, actually going beyond that, we we have really, I think, really smart anglers up here, and people who not just are good at fishing but really appreciate the outdoors, appreciate what we have. And when the DNR makes a change like this, and there's always going to be some ideas that are different than other ideas, but by and large, there's there's hasn't been a whole lot of controversy in in a lot of the changes it, it seems to be that they're, they're they they talk to the community they find out what people are thinking and i i just think we've got the people that just uh care enough and and are, are well educated enough and there just always seems to be a, a more or less a consensus when we make these these rule changes i couldn't agree with you more kev especially with the folks up here in uh, the bemidji area you know and i know a lot of the guys and gals that get out there and fish a lot and it really is i mean you know like for my i'm the same way for myself you know like in my boat if i have people out on a walleye guide trip we don't keep any fish over 20 inches and you know those smaller fish 14 to 18 19 inches they're the best eating anyhow and and we we i i kind of have parameters in my boat and you know folks that are maybe aren't from the area and you have them out on a trip and and well, why are we throwing a fish like that back? It's big. And I, when I explain to them why we do that, it's amazing how many, m- most of the people like, oh, man, that's pretty cool. You know, you snap a picture of that bigger fish and, and then to release it and see it swim away and know that maybe somebody else will have a, the thrill of catching a big fish like that. And the, and the folks here that, you know, that, that we live here in the Bemidji area, most of them are all like that. It's just, it's great to see. And that's why we, I think that's why the Bemidji area is such a, a great destination for people coming from all over the country to want to come here and fish because 
not only do we have the beauty of the area, the 400 lakes within, you know, 25 miles of town, but we've got really, really good fishing for all different species. And we are so blessed in the Bemidji area that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing, no doubt about it. Absolutely. Hey, Dick, anything else you want to share before we wrap it up today? Well, Kev, no, I guess just that, uh, you know, everybody hang in there. We're, uh, you know, we're in that transition period. Um, if you do go out on the ice, just really be careful. Make sure you check the, uh, the ice thickness, just like you would in the early part of the winter season. You know, you're out there with a spud bar and, and, and travel with somebody else. Not, don't be out there by yourself. And then, uh, this is a great time, like we talked earlier, to get the boat ready, get the trailer ready, get your rods, reels, check over your tackle box, get some new gear, some, nor- some, uh, new baits, and, uh, you'll be ready to go and, You'll be as excited as I am. <laughs> hey, Dick, if people are uh, getting ready for a spring or summer trip, uh, how do they get a hold of you to get something set up? You betcha, Kev. They can give me a call at 218-556-7172, or you can sure email me at dick at dickbeardsley.com. And if you want to go to my, i got a Facebook page also, Dick Beardsley Fishing Guide Service. and then uh, Or you can go to my website. It's just Dick Beardsley Fishing Guide. Dick Beardsley on the show today. Always love having him on. Great guy and a great angler. Hey, Dick, thanks for the time today. Have a great weekend. Hey, you too, Kev. Always great talking with you. Thanks so much. Well, we're soon, if not already, at that time where we're not going to be able to ice fish, yet we can't get the boat into the water yet either. So what do we do in that downtime? Up next, Steve Sapaniak of Predator Guide Service has some ideas on how to get ready for soft water season. And then we continue our conversation with Lori Nauman of the Minnesota DNR's Non-Game Wildlife Program. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. I'm Kev Jackson. Thanks for joining us today. We check back in with Lori Nauman of the Minnesota DNR's Non-Game Wildlife Program. She's the information officer there. And the way they are funded is through the non-game checkoff on your Minnesota state tax return. And, Lori, we are in tax season now, and uh, I heard a rumor we might even have an extra month to get it done. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's there. So the non-game checkoff, how does that work? So, um it has been extended this year, except that I believe in Minnesota, um, don't quote me on this, but I believe in Minnesota, our tax deadline is still April 15th. So the federal return doesn't need to go in until May, but you would still need to, you'd still need to file here in Minnesota on time. So when you donate on your tax forms, you can donate any amount and that money comes to the non-game wildlife program comes to us and then that funding gets matched by the critical habitat license plate fund so all of those beautiful license plates that you see in minnesota that the purchase of those license plates matches our donations and then we get we get that money as well so every donation to the non-game wildlife program is double if you donate ten dollars it means twenty dollars to our program so and and again it's the the major part of those of our of our funding um comes from that so we really rely on that and if anything were to ever happen to the checkoff our our program would tank um so it's something that we work really hard on um in raising awareness about the program and about the checkoff 
And it's right there on your Minnesota tax form, pretty easy to find, and you just uh, you just fill in what you want to contribute. Absolutely. It used to be that there was a you know misconception also that you that we wanted you to donate a dollar because it said a dollar or more. But um, once we removed that language from the tax form, now it's clear that you can donate as much as you want to. And some folks donate their entire um, refund to the Nineteen wow. Wildlife Program, and some folks even direct their um, their estate planning um, to our non-game wildlife program. We don't get that very often, but those are also very important donations to our program. Well, you know, I just know me as a guy who likes to get out on the bike trails and get out on a boat and enjoy fishing. And, you know, people I know who are really into hunting, many of them say, you know, I don't even care if I catch a fish or go hunting. And I think maybe half of them are telling the complete truth there. But it is about that other stuff. It is about that quiet day. It is about the birds. It is about those things you see scurrying about, you know, up the trees, all of that. It's, again, it's why we love living in Minnesota. Absolutely, it is. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are people who go out hunting, and they, they do it not because they're just out to kill something. They do it because they love being out in nature and Minnesota has so much to offer. We have so many, such a great diversity of species. We're so very fortunate. We have three different area, three different types of biomes in Minnesota, and those areas provide such a great diversity of species that, you know, if you're out in northern Minnesota, you're going to see different species than you might see in the southwest when you're when you're hunting in the prairies or near the farmlands, things like that. But all of those species are intertwined. And all of those species rely on some sort of funding and some sort of um, money to help help them thrive and um, survive. Lori, um, what besides talking to people like me does the information officer do for the non-game wildlife program? So that is um, precisely what my job is: is to is marketing and promotion for the non-game wildlife program. So. I do a lot of interviews and things like that. I also operate the Eagle Cam for Minnesota, and so that um, gorgeous pair of eagles that are sitting on eggs right now that are about to hatch any second now, um, I, I do that. And that's to raise awareness of the program. It's not because we need to know more about bald eagles, because that population has recovered, as I said. Um, we know that we have a very healthy population of, of eagles in Minnesota because of our program and, and other programs. Um, but this is to raise awareness. And now there are so many people around the country and actually around the world that watch this eagle cam. And by showing people this, we also bring them to our webpage via our Facebook page and other outlets so that they can learn about the different projects that are funded by their donations, because we do get donations based on the Eagle Cam as well. And um, folks just love this Eagle Cam. We we really do have people all over the world watching it. And how did you get involved in this? Well, I've been around a long time. I've worked for, for the department for um, 32 years now. And over the years, I just became really interested in the non-game wildlife program. And um, just as, as part of my job, I thought that it might be cool to, you know, there were others that suggested that there was this eagle nest and let's put a camera there. So along with, you know, 
innovation and technology, we decided to do that, and we might be putting up a second one coming up soon, but that was something that was, you know, important to me to keep um, the awareness of the non-game wildlife program, um, you know, out there and people interested in it. And um, Carol Henderson was a very, um, he, he was a very popular um, program leader for a long time. He's retired now, but he was also very instrumental in a lot of the, um, a lot of the things that we have currently going on. And um, so that was that was another piece that is something that people really became aware of our program, um, and you know even people watching in Vietnam, we have kids um, a school um, school in Vietnam, their third and fourth graders that use our Eagle Cam as part of their curriculum, and they watch it um, all throughout the year to learn about Minnesota's bald eagles, and so. It's just a very rewarding um, career because I have all of the great, showy, beautiful species, you know, all of those species that are so fun to work with. And they're so, I get, I still get calls every day and emails. I just saw a bald eagle or I just saw six trumpeter swans fly over me. And that's, and that's so fun. And people in Minnesota just love that. And people who have just moved here from other states, for instance, you know, it's just, so fun that people go outside in Minnesota and spend time in their state parks and see these species and are still in awe every time they see them. Did you grow up in the outdoors, Lori? You know, I, I grew up in the city, but I there was a sort of a wild area near my house, and we spent a lot of time back there as kids, just, you know, digging around in the mud and spending time, you know, fishing on the shore and I wasn't necessarily brought up in an outdoor household, but I spent a lot of time in the outdoors learning about things. And my brother used to love to bring things home, um, like raccoons and snakes and things. So, <laughs> um, so by default, I, I got interested in it. And once I started working for the DNR, I, that was when I really dove in and gained most of my knowledge just on the job and it was awesome i i did i did not know how to identify a bird when i started working for the dnr and now i'm considered the you know one of the bird experts when you when you call in and you have questions about birds so i've learned a lot about their behavior and <clears throat> how to identify them and why they're important and also to protect their nests um, i do issue permits for a number of different birds and um, bald eagle nests I help protect, um, things like that. So I do get involved in quite a few different things just based on my institutional knowledge. Now, in addition to um, taking advantage of the, the checkoff, what can I do in my everyday life to help non-game wildlife? Well, spend time outdoors. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the most important thing and that's you know once you get out there and you start seeing these species that's when your interest is really going to um is going to increase and having um having that interest and that love that's how you that's how you hook people and that's how people get hooked on on non-game or any other wildlife species and, and you know feeding birds in your backyard that's another thing that people once they start doing it they just get hooked and this last year with the pandemic going on a lot more people were 
putting bird food out and watching the birds at their feeders and and then becoming interested in all the different species that come and started to, you know, call in or do research online trying to identify those species and it just it really opens up a whole new world. I mean, once you start to watch birds and other species when you're outside, it it really your your mind just expands so much when you start to realize the diversity um, that is out there and just that knowledge and that interest alone helps to raise people's awareness of why this is important and why these areas need to be protected and why species need to be protected and why they need money, why they need um, monetary assistance because they they can't do this on their own and um, you know there's so many people that are not aware of how important these things are and you know just go about with their you know, destruction of habitat or, um, or do, you know, having construction projects, things like that. Without people who are paying attention and watching and interested in species, we, we wouldn't be able to protect them either. And understanding that the non-game species in Minnesota are not funded by, um, hunting or fishing licenses and, and they need something. They need something to help them and there's not, any kind of a surcharge or a or a duck stamp or anything like that that helps fund them either. So, just gaining an appreciation and knowledge for all the different diversity we have going on in our state is is just appreciated. You know, just mm. appreciate it and get outside and enjoy our outdoors. And I'm assuming that uh, we can always just go to the DNR website, and there's a there's places there that can give us more information, and then we can uh, do some research for, on if we have some interest. Yeah, absolutely. And we have um, non-game specialists throughout the state, so we have um, our regional projects are listed by Northwest, Northeast, Central, and Southern Minnesota, and you can go on there and see the current research and projects that are going on for all those different species, as well as um, how to make a donation, the different um, webcams that we have. We do have a camera on a peregrine falcon nest in downtown Minnesota, um, in downtown St. Paul. And, um, you know, different research reports are listed there on our pages, as well as, um, you know, other, like the wildlife action plan that we're involved in, where we apply for funding and get grants and things like that, and um, information about ed- wildlife education and how educators can... Um, incorporate wildlife learning into their curriculums and it's mndnr.gov forward slash non-game and just do some spend some time on that page and look around and how to make a donation and um, find out what's going on in your area and and how you can help because everyone's efforts can make a difference. Lori Nauman is the Information Officer for the Non-Game Wildlife Program of the Minnesota DNR. Lori, thank you for all the information today. It was a great conversation, and uh, as soon as it gets warm enough, let's get out there and enjoy that uh, Non-Game Wildlife. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And before we wrap it up today, it's time to check in with Steve Sapaniak of Predator Guide Service. Steve's done ice fishing for the year, but of course he can't get out in the boat yet either. So what is he doing in the meantime? He's getting ready for soft water season. Now's the time, folks. You want to get your open water summer stuff ready, spring stuff ready. Don't wait till the end. Get everything ready now. What I'm doing right now is I'm starting from scratch, Kevin. I'm taking my rods and reels. All my rods have cork handles. Cork does not absorb uh, 
moisture, doesn't absorb fish slime like foam handles do. Remember, folks, foam was invented as an insulator, not as a distributor of uh, fine finesse little bites from a fish. Cork is made for that. Cork transmits all types of sensitivity and bites. So what you want to do is take some warm water, dishy, dishy soap water, a lot of suds to it, and uh, take a rag, dish rag, and wash your cork handles good. You will not only clean them, you will bring them to life again, believe it or not. Get that smell off, get that dirt off. That helps a lot. Next, what I like to do is check all the rod guides, make sure there's no cracks in them. You ever lose a trophy of a lifetime because your rod guide has a crack in it, you'll make sure that never happens again. So clean all your eyes out on the rods and everything and clean the rod itself. Then from there, Kevin, I like to do the reels. I'm not good at disassembling anything. Some things in life we all have to say enough, and that's mine. But I'm pretty good at the major, you know, the uh, little, little things like oiling and grease and stuff like that. Make sure your reels are in good shape. Put new line on. Don't be using the same line, especially if you're using monofilament. Excuse me. Monofilament has memory. When I was doing uh, helping a TV show years ago, we showed what memory really was like. I took a two-foot stretch of monofilament line. It had coils like a spring. And when I pulled those coils tight, there was over a foot of coils in there. So if you use an old line, you're not going to detect the hit. Put new fresh line on, folks. Make sure you get fresh line. From there, I like to rearrange and order my tackle box. It's like my garage. I can have it looking fantastic in no time, but within a week, it's back to looking like, looking like a disaster. So I like to get my tackle box organized, take a look at all my lures with hooks on, make sure those hooks don't have rust on them. If they do, replace them. Make sure those hooks are sharp, you know, really sharp. When you get done sharpening a hook, you should be able to put that hook on your thumb, let your thumb hang, and the uh, lure hangs there, too. It doesn't slide off. That's the key. There are three sides to sharpening a hook, everybody. You've got the two sides, and then you can do the top or bottom. You can sharpen. Make sure those hooks are sharp. And from there, I just like to make sure everything else is doing good, like my life jackets, all my lights and everything that I want to carry with me when I'm night guiding for muskies. And uh, basically, you know, if you can get to your boat, start doing the same thing there. Take the boat apart. Take the chairs out. Make sure everything is in good shape. Vacuum the floor. Wash all of the dirt off of it. Wash all of the grime. You know, that's all important. Vacuuming is one of the most important parts, especially if you've got carpet. You're going to be walking in, driving that uh, grit, that dirt into the carpet, which is going to tear your carpet, and it's going to fall apart. So keep that stuff in mind. You know, now's the time to do all that kind of stuff. For gosh sakes, make sure that motor's in good shape, and make sure the trolling motor and the sonar is in good shape. And please keep one thing in mind, folks. Do not leave your sonars or your trolling motor on your boat over winter. I get a lot of people ask me why. Do you leave your color TV outside during the winter time? There's your answer. That's all electronics, and you got to take care of it. So that should keep everybody busy for a few days, Kevin, at least. Okay, it certainly will. Um, do you take time to just open up the tackle box and take an inventory and figure out exactly what you're going to need? Yeah, yeah, I've already done that, and I have to make a trip to one of the musket shops in the cities, Thorn Brothers, right now they're working on some rods of mine. I went through them and everything, and I want to have them fine-tuned a little bit better, getting the cork handles replaced. And I got a bunch of lures I have to buy, Kevin, musky lures. Unfortunately, they're not cheap. So um, when I get there, I usually leave my billfold and my checkbook in the glove compartment because when I walk into that store, a great big neon light goes on my forehead and says, sucker. So I got to be careful. But, yeah, this year I have to replace a bunch of lures. I bet you I'm looking at at least a few hundred dollars in replacing, and that doesn't go far. Okay. Anything else, Steve, we should talk about this week before we wrap it up? 
You know, uh, just uh, have fun. Get all your stuff ready. You know, if you can't do no more ice fishing, now's the time to clean all your ice gear. Get that put away nicely, too. You know, charge up that battery for your sonar. Get everything looking good for next year. Get new line already on for this year, for next year, if you want. You know, it doesn't hurt. But, no, I think we're looking pretty good, Kevin. I just want everybody to have a good time. If you do go fishing, please, please be safe. Like Kevin said, bring those picks with Bring a life jacket, and for God's sakes, bring a couple buddies. Absolutely. And, hey, Steve, if we want to do a fun uh, musky trip on Mille Lacs this summer or any like in that area that you uh, you know about, how do we get set up with you? Well, good question. Thank you. Check out my website, everybody. All one word, predatorguideservice.com. That's predatorguideservice.com. I got pictures of two muskies that are pushing as close to 50 pounds as you can get amongst all the other pictures of clients with big fish. Be happy to take you out and work with you. I've uh, I've been lucky. The good Lord has uh, helped me out in times when we can get the fish going, and there's other times when you can't. But you know what? That's fishing. But, yeah, check out predatorguideservice.com. On my website's my phone number. Give me a call, and let's get something going. Steve Sabaniak of Predator Guide Service joining us again this week on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Steve, thanks for joining us. Have a great week. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. That's it for this week. A lot of great stuff coming up next week, too, including one of the best places to go for the early season fishing scene, Rainy River. Bruce Dean will talk sturgeon and walleyes, and we'll have much more as well. That's it for this week. I'm Kev Jackson. Thanks for joining us. Call of Duty Modern Warfare is here, and so is Mountain Dew. Roger that. Now you can unlock in-game rewards like only Dew can. Wait, what rewards? A Dew Operator Skin. Man, I love Operator Skins. Dual double XP, and even Call of Duty Points. You're kidding me. Double XP and Call of Duty Points? This is incredible. I can't believe it. Soldier, get a hold of yourself. Oh, roger that. Look for specially marked packaging and visit mtndugaming.com for details and restrictions. Open to U.S. residents 17 plus. Call of Duty points available on 12 and 24 packs and free 20 and 23.